We're starting a new book of the Bible here this morning, the book of Hebrews. We have finished our study in the book of Ephesians, and now we're zipping over to the book of Hebrews. I wanted to say before, we are going to start the sermon sooner or later, but one more word I want to say, and, and that is just this, for, for whatever reasons, for a variety of reasons, I come here this morning just very aware and very appreciative of the unique climate or the unique spirit of, of uh, this place. And what I mean by that is this, that I, I um, just feel totally at home and accepted around here. And it's easy for me to take that for granted, but the truth is that a lot of places, maybe most places that you might go um, to preach or to speak or whatever, uh, there's expectations put on you, the man of God, the reverend, uh, you know, whatever. And uh, I feel that, and I never feel like I can live up to that. I, I just have never, the odd thing is, the odd thing is, I'm a professor at Bethel, I, I, I preach here quite a bit, um, I, I speak at different places, but I never really feel at home around Christians I don't know. It's, it's a strange thing. I feel inferior. I got this spiritual inferiority complex. Um, and because and, a lot of times there's just stuff, like, you know, the man of God and whatever, and you just can't quite be yourself. I find myself having to work really hard to censor things I would normally say. Like in the last service, you know, my belt was coming down, my zipper was down, and I just mentioned that. And, and uh, a lot of people would be offended by that. Now, I don't know why. Everyone's got zippers, and, and they need to keep them up. But, uh, but it's like men of God don't have to zipper their pants or what. I, I don't... But I just appreciate very much the, the, just the freedom to just be who we are. You know, we're, we're just who we are. Uh, we're people who know Jesus and are growing at different rates and at different stages along the way. And we've got all sorts of different kind of issues or whatever. And, and we're striving for the same goal, but we're at different places in terms of getting that goal. And we're okay with that. And that is such a crucial, important thing. And I just want to thank you. Praise God. Amen. Thank the Lord. I've just never been a person who's been very good at being religious, and I, I've never been, you know, never liked trying to be that. And so I just appreciate being able to, to be me. Oh, God, I'll be me. Okay, Hebrews. <clears throat> in, your, in your bulletins, I said we'd get through the first uh, 12 verses. I lied. Uh, we'll probably get through the first three, and here's how they read. Hebrews chapter 1. We are beginning a journey right now. In the past... God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, which basically means in the final chapter of this saga that God is writing with world history, in, these, in this final chapter, he's spoken to us by his son. And there's a contrast implied there. Before he spoke through prophets, now he's speaking through his own son. The son is the one whom he appointed to be heir of all things. We'll talk about that next week. And through whom he made the entire universe. The son, who is the son? Is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. And after he had provided purifications for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. That's who the Son is. Let's pray. Father, let your word come alive here. 
It's just ink on paper, Lord, if we read it and understand it with our carnal mind and the natural self. And Lord, it's just vibrations through the air. If I try to speak this and we try to listen to this in our natural self, Lord, we desperately need your spirit to come and make this of any kingdom value. Apart from that, God, it has none. Without you, we can do nothing, but with you, we can do all things. So, Father, we create a vacuum in our own spirit and in our own confidence that you would come and fill that vacuum. And just be glorified here, Lord God. I pray that more than anything else that Jesus Christ would shine here, that truth would shine here, and that this teaching, Lord God, would be used to build your kingdom. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Two things I want to talk about here in the next half hour. I want to talk about, first of all, the concept that God spoke. It comes out of verse 1 here. God spoke. That's point number one. And in these last days, he spoke through his son. That's point number two. And some of the things I want to say I've said before, but I believe they bear repeating because the issue I want to address is so foundational. Everything that Christianity is about, the whole Christian walk, is rooted on the word of God. And this whole concept of God speaking, God spoke, God said, thus says the Lord, is, is, is the foundation upon which everything that we're about rests. What we need to know is that that concept, and we probably already know it if we're out and about the world very much, that concept, the very idea of God speaking in a definitive, decisive way, God speaking absolute truths, God speaking absolute teachings of morality, right and wrong, true and false, the very idea that God can have an opinion, that there's a God who can communicate to us, and that we can know what that opinion is, is radically foreign to our culture, at least as it is now. Fifty years ago, maybe even 20 years ago, you could say, I believe the Bible is God's word, and someone would say either, I believe that too, or they'd say, I think you're a fool, or they just choose to ignore you. They either agree or disagree or, or ignore you. Those are the options. And the main spirit we struggled with was the spirit of unbelief. People didn't believe what they ought to believe. What we're dealing with today is, I believe, much more difficult, in some ways at least. We're dealing now with a spirit of unbelief so much as we are a spirit of utter confusion and delusion and deception. Because now the problem is to find somebody who actually has a conviction that would disagree with anything that you might believe. The climate of this age is sort of like this. It, it, it goes by the name of, of relativism. A belief that truth is relative and a belief that ethics and morality is relative. And you could say, I believe that God spoke through the prophets in previous times and now speaks through his son, Jesus Christ. You could say that. And you might even have a hard time finding someone to disagree with you. What they would do is rather say something like, well, that's wonderful, that's good for you. I hope that fulfills your being. I hope that that just helps you live in the world and, and, and discover your inner child. I, I just hope that that, that, that that really helps you get along with people and, and love other people and better the world. That's good for you. For me, I, I, I tend to like uh, you know, the Bhagavad Gita better. God speaks to me through the Bhagavad Gita. And God speaks to you through the Bible. And God speaks to them through the Book of Mormon. And God speaks to them through the Quran. And God speaks to them through the Bodhisattva and the Vedas and the, and the divine principles. And oh God, oh, God is so broad and so wonderful and so diverse. And thank goodness we can just all find our own way there. And no one should really disagree with anybody. Unless they claim that their way is the only way. Well, then we've got a problem, you see. But the spirit is one of confusion and delusion. 
And the whole idea, and this creeps into the church, this creeps into the church, and I deal with students all the time who say, I believe Christianity, I believe Jesus Christ is Lord for me, for me. But, but of course, it's just my opinion, and what do I know? And no one really knows the absolute truth, and you know, it's just... Another thing is that people try to define truth according to their own whims, according to their own, their own desires. I believe this because I like that thought. Or I don't believe that. I don't like it. Whatever you like, whatever you wish, whatever your intuition is, whatever just seems to fit what your agenda is about, that is true for you. You define your own truth. And therefore, no one is in a position to tell anyone else that what their truth is, is wrong. It's all just a relative thing, you see. And that makes evangelizing very difficult to do. And it also can, if, to the degree that it makes inroads in the church, you got problems. Because if the Word of God is just the Word of God for you, and there is no absolute truth in this whole thing, then before you know it, if your whim defines what is true, then even if your whim is to believe in, in the Bible, you'll eventually start believing in some parts of the Bible and not in others, because some parts are going to strike you as more enlightening, as, 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 as better, as more informative, and they fit your scheme better than other parts. And that's exactly what is happening in the church. So you end up, even among those who profess believing in the Word of God, you end up compromising it, watering it down, picking and choosing. I like this part, but not that part. And in the end, the Word of God loses all of its authority because what's really an authority is you, because the Bible's only allowed to speak authoritatively when you agree with it, which means that you're the authority. It doesn't stand over you, you stand over it. In order to relate to our culture well, and in order just to guard against the spirit of error encroaching in on our own Christianity and watering it down, we need to be aware of this, what I'd call a, a real spirit of deception. It, it goes under various rubrics. One is the New Age movement, and relativism, as I, I, I shared earlier. A couple things about it, okay? Put on your thinking caps. Let's analyze this movement. This is, this is teaching time here. And I really believe that it's important for Christians to be informed not just emotively, but to be informed cognitively, cognitively to be able to think well. This, this relativism stuff, first thing is, it's radically inconsistent. There is no person who believes it, who holds to it, that can, can hold to it in a consistent way. The very idea that all truth is relative is a non-relative truth. I was speaking to a person about this just several weeks ago, and I'm, I'll paraphrase the conversation I had. This isn't the exact words we use, but this person was saying that they believe that all truth was relative, that all morality was relative, that no one really is in a position to say that one person's way of finding truth or one person's conclusion regarding truth was wrong or what have you. I believe that all truth is, is, is relative. And so I said to this person, you seem to hold this belief that all truth is relative very strongly. And the person said, and this is a paraphrase, Absolutely. Absolutely. It's absolutely true that all truth is relative. Well, see, that's, that's a complete contradiction. If it's true, it's false. If it's false, it's true. You go figure it out. It just doesn't make, can't make heads or tails of it. A person could say, a person has said, I've dialogued with them before, they say, well, look at, when people get involved in these belief us, you believe this is true, you believe that is false. You're, you're narrow, you're just, you're, you're, you're bigoted. It's just, you have a belief system and, and it stops you from growing. Belief systems, this person said, stop you from growing. They just inhibit you. Better to just not believe anything for sure and just kind of explore your way and look at possibilities, always possibilities. But when you commit to one, when you commit to one, well, that stops your growing. Belief systems are hindrance. I said to the person, that's a very interesting belief you have. 
Because what the person didn't realize was that their belief was, in fact, a belief system. And it was just as narrow and just as defined and just as, if you will, bigoted as, as any other belief system. And so by the person's own definition, they are being hindered in their growth. But the air of deception today is the idea that somehow the belief that all truth is relative, the belief that, that, that there is no one way to go, is somehow a broader truth, a, uh, a more enlightened truth. It's not really a belief system at all, but it's a deception and it's inconsistent. A second point is this. That belief system really isn't all that broad. In fact, it's no broader than any other belief system. Though the people who, who believe this, and they're all over the place in our culture, they really believe that they're broad. They're the educated ones. They're the enlightened ones. It's these silly Christians who, just, who think that the Bible's the Word of God, and, and, and therefore the other books, as good as they are, aren't the Word of God. Who believe that Jesus is somehow unique among all the teachers of the world. Who just believe that, that, that uh, the Bible, Christianity's got something unique to say. They're so narrow, and they're so unenlightened, and they're so medieval, and they're so archaic. They really need to read more books and go to college and broaden their minds, and then they'd see the wonderful, glorious truth that all roads lead to absolute truth. Hallelujah. There's no one way. And, and, and this is what broad-minded people believe in our culture. And they really believe that about themselves. The trouble is that the belief that all things are relative and the belief that all roads lead to God if there is a God and the belief that there are no absolutes is just as narrow, just as defined as any other belief you might hold. An analogy that I've used in the past, and I'll use it again this morning, is this. If you're in the middle of a forest, let's say you've got a bunch of people in the middle of the forest, and you've got eight, eight paths that lead out of this forest, and you smell smoke so you think that the forest is on fire, because, see, we're all going to die, and we've got to decide this issue uh, at some point in our life, and, and we've got a finite amount of time to, die with, to, to live with, and then we die. So you're in the forest, and the forest is on fire. You know, you, that you know you're going to die if you, if you stay there. So you've got to choose which path are you going to try to get out of this forest with. You're all lost. One person says, let's go down path number one. Another person says, let's go down path number two. Another person says, let's go down path number three, and so on. Well, they've all got about a one in eight chance of being right. Take your gamble. Maybe you should discuss what, why you choose one path over the other. Let's look at the evidence. But now comes along somebody in this group and says, Ah, oh, you guys are so narrow. You're so bigoted. You're just so small-minded. You're archaic. You're medieval. Why? All paths are going to lead you out of the forest. Why? Argue with one another. Let's love one another and get along with one another. And, and what's, what's, what's the right path for you? Maybe it's not the right path for, for, for John over there. Let's all just go our own ways. I'm broad-minded. I'm liberal. I'm open. But see... This person may be right. The person may be wrong. And the probability of him being right is exactly the same as the probability of any one path being the right way out. The person's belief system, though he thinks that it's broader than the rest, is just as narrow. The probability is just as high or just as low as being right. The deception here is, I mean, there are people who, who believe this relativism stuff with the same kind of conviction and narrowness as, as the most radical fundamentalist. They just are deluded into thinking that they're being open-minded for doing it. What makes a belief open or closed? What makes you a broad-minded person or not? It's whether or not, whether or not you're willing to talk reason. What you believe isn't, isn't broad or narrow. In fact, truth is always well-defined. It's always in contrast to other things. If you believe 2 and 2 equals 4, that means you rule out all other numbers. You're very, a very narrow person. If you believe this is water instead of... But light, well, you're very narrow. If you believe it's water instead of any other thing, you're narrow because it's either one thing or, or, or the other. If you believe that human beings are human and not dogs, well, you're ruling out every other animal of the species. You're being very narrow. And so on and so on. Maybe that last analogy didn't work. Scratch it, fine. But you got the point. 
Broad-mindedness is in how you believe something, not in what you believe. A, a third thing here is that the belief that all things are relative is absolutely unlivable. It's absolutely unlivable. No one lives like this. This is the delusion of our age. Know this stuff because you're going to be talking to people, and maybe you're here this morning and you're one of these people, but you'll be talking to people who hold this, and we need to be able to bring them along and get them thinking more clearly about things. It's not livable. If we're in the middle of a street and there's a truck coming towards us, and I say, hey, John, there's a truck coming towards us, you are not going to say, well, maybe there's a truck coming you know, in your perception, but not in mine. That might be true for you, but not for me. No, if there's a truck coming, you're going to get out of the way. We assume, we always assume that the world is the way it is, and it's not open to just my perception or your perception. One thing that I get a kick out of, I, I don't get a kick out of, it kind of actually irritates me, but is this. I, I'll give you one example of how this is not a livable doctrine. Uh, about a week ago, I read in the paper this... Um, Two more women died from this female circumcision. Have you read about this in the papers? Female circumcision is practiced in some Muslim countries and in some African tribes. It's a very painful, mutilating operation they perform on young girls uh, just for the gratification of males later on in life. And, and I don't really understand it, but it's, it's, I guess, pretty barbaric. And there is right now this incredible groundswell of anger and animosity in Western culture against that. Many outspoken people are saying that the United Nations ought to sanction, ought to put sanctions on these primitive people and on these Muslim countries that practice female circumcision. It's barbaric, it's cruel, it's unjust. Now I agree with that, I agree with that. I, you know, let's get rid of that, it's barbaric, we've outgrown that, great, do it. But, I can hold that it's wrong for a culture to do that because I believe there are moral principles that transcend cultures. But what strikes me as odd is that I know for a fact, I know personally people who are very outspoken in the feminist movement, very outspoken, very much against this practice, but who are what are called cultural relativists. And that is this. They don't believe that there's absolute morality. They don't believe anybody has the right to tell anyone else what to believe. But they believe it's defined according to culture. People get together, you know, we've got to live with one another, we've got to learn to get along with one another. So they come up with rules to live by. And though that's the morality around us. You know, you're taught a certain way, you believe it's wrong because you were taught that way, and there is no standard of right and wrong over and above that. Here's the problem. If morality is culturally relative, then what business do you, Miss Western person, telling these Africans, telling these Arabs that what they're doing is wrong? Maybe it's wrong for you, for your culture. But they've been doing this for thousands of years. On what basis, on what rule of absolute morality do you appeal to say that their culture is wrong and your culture is right? How narrow, how bigoted, how slanted, how dare you? It's all just relative. It's not a livable doctrine. It's, 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 it's uh, impossible to live consistently. And the, third, the, the, the final point, fourth point is this. It's, base, it's just sheer irrational. It's just sheer irrational. The idea that, and I, I confront it all the time, you probably confront it too, people say, I don't like that belief and therefore I don't think it's true. You've got to ask the question, what does what you like or not like have to do with whether something's true or not? Think about it. This is so pervasive, so pervasive. Truth and morality is like the flavor of an ice cream. You know, I like chocolate, you like vanilla, let's all you know, let's get along. But what would ever make a person think that what is true depends upon what you wish is true or what's convenient for you to think is true or what fits your presuppositions to be true. If the truck is coming down the road, whether you like it or not is pretty irrelevant at that point. 
And so it is with all of life. I wish there was no diseases in this world. I wish that there was no diseases in this world, but the world doesn't care what I think. There are diseases. I wish Minnesota winters were a whole lot warmer, or warmer, and I wish there was no mosquitoes during the summer, but there are because the world just doesn't care what Greg Boyd wishes was true. Truth is there whether we like it or not, whether we accept it or not, whether we agree with it or not, whether we find it convenient or not, whether it fits our fancy or not. And so it is with this. Whether something is true, whether the Bible is true, whether thus says the Lord in Holy Scripture, whether Jesus Christ is Lord, whether or not you're a person as an unbeliever who's really in serious trouble unless you become a believer, whether or not that's true or not has nothing to do with whether you like the idea, whether it makes you feel good, whether you get goosebumps. Nothing could be more irrelevant than that. The question is, is it true? And what I want to tell you this morning is this. The Christianity and all that we're about is based, thank God, not on a I think so or an I suppose so or I would like this or I find this convenient or this makes me feel flowery or this gives me goosebumps or this just makes my day or this helps me get along with people better or this just helps me, you know, just uh, you know, live in peace or what have you. It's not based on my fancy or your fancy or anyone else's fancy. It's based on a thus says the Lord. Amen. God at various times. Amen. At various times in his sundry ways spoke. The God who created us did not leave us in a quagmire of relativistic soup. Quagmire of relativistic soup. Come on, Holy Spirit. You've got to do better than that. You gotta, come on, you, give me something here, God. I mean, here's what I mean. Quag, I thought it works. Quagmire of relativistic. You know, just swimming through the fog of, of agnostic nothingness. Das Nixiga. God spoke and God said, this is what is true. I'm here to submit to you this morning that you've got more reasons to believe and accept that than you've got for any other religious belief system. And the reason to accept it is not because it will help you actualize yourself. No. The promise is this. How delightful that if you accept this, if you submit to the word of God, if you make Jesus Christ Lord of your life, you're going to suffer. That's what Jesus said. What a great sales pitch. You're going to suffer. It's going to be difficult. It means you're going to have to walk away from things that your, your natural self would want to grab onto. To become a disciple means you become a disciplined one. That never hits anyone as being nice. It's not a convenient thing to believe. I'll tell you that right now. It's not necessarily a nice, quaint thing to believe. I can tell you that right now. It's not necessarily something that's going to come natural to you. I can tell you that right now. It's never come natural to me. Some of the things in the Bible I find very hard to believe. Some of the things in the Bible I find very hard to do. I find the Christian life is sometimes a struggle. But you don't believe this stuff because it's going to give you a nice tingly feeling. That's not the issue. You believe it because it's true. Because it's true. And our culture wants, the first question is, well, what will it do for me? And what, what, well, what's in it for me? What's in it for you is this. If you submit yourself to this, you'll stop asking that question because you'll find that there's something far better, far greater, far more precious, far more beautiful, and far more fulfilling than what you can ever find going around trying to ask what's in it for me. You crucify yourself daily and you walk with the Lord and there is, the Bible says, a depth of reality, a depth of joy, a depth of power that you will discover that you would not have otherwise known. But first comes submitting, denying yourself, taking up your cross, crucifying yourself, following Jesus, and then the reality and the goods and the wisdom of God is there. Against everything that our culture stands for, the Bible says, thus says the Lord, thus speaks God. And we dare not tamper with it, relativize it, try to figure it, figure it out in our little scheme. What you do is you bend your knee and say, I accept. At various times God spoke through prophets, but now he has spoken to us through his son. And now let me turn to that, the son. 
the Son of God. As, the, as Hebrew 1 plays it out, and this is what the book of Hebrews is all about, folks. It's about the person of Jesus Christ. There's something decisive, there's something definitive about God speaking through Jesus Christ. This is God's final declaration. Now in the same way that our culture tries to wash down, relativize truth, it tries to water down and relativize the person of Jesus Christ. Very few people are out there who just reject it as an absolute lie. What people rather try to do in our culture is they try to fit Jesus into some little program that they've already got going. They want Jesus to somehow fit in with their belief system that's already there. They want Jesus to be a footnote to what they already believe and what they already do. They want him to become a convenient savior, a, uh, if a savior at all. Someone who is reasonable within their world system. Someone else who will just help them actualize their potentiality and get along in life. One more feel-good mechanism. What ends up happening is that we in our culture created Jesus after our own image. My Jesus. And this is the Jesus of our wishful thinking. At least it's very prevalent out there. In New Testament scholarship, I've written two books about this, Sinning Sager, Son of God, and Jesus Under Siege. Among a lot of liberal New Testament scholarship, there's this idea. They start with the assumption that the biblical Jesus is not the real Jesus. Because the biblical Jesus is too weird. He, he does miracles. He makes divine claims for himself. People worship him. Too weird. Can't be true. Now, if you accept that starting point, the only question is, well, then what is true? Well, since all the evidence we have, or most of the evidence we have, is in the Bible, and the Bible's not true, we have to basically just guess. And so here's, let's start guessing. What Jesus is real? What's the real Jesus? Well, we'll pick and choose from the gospel parts, you know, according to what we like. A, a scholar who's really into feeding the poor, uh, he, he believes that the parts in, in the Bible that talk about Jesus caring for the poor, why, those are the true parts. The rest is maybe mythology. But Jesus is the great feeder of poor people. Hallelujah. The other person maybe really is into equality, into equal rights, into treating women and slaves fairly. And so that's the part of the gospel that he thinks is really true. The rest of it's maybe mythology. You can throw it away. It's no good. But he discovers through his historical methodology and writes books on this, Jesus is the great egalitarian. Or if you want a philosopher, you find Jesus the philosopher. You want a revolutionary, you find Jesus the revolutionary. You want a social critic, you find Jesus the social critic. You want a religious critic, you find Jesus the religious critic. You want some kind of prophet, you find Jesus the prophet. You want a feminist, you find Jesus the feminist. You're into ecology, this is true, they find Jesus the ecologist. Straining out of the Bible the things that they think, that they wish, that's convenient for them to believe because they start with the assumption that as it is, it cannot be true. And there's others in this day and age that we live in, we just got to know this. There's a billion and 17 different Jesuses out there. Some think that he's just a great teacher, you know, good, insightful stuff, saint. We ought to canonize the guy. Some think he's a ma major angel. Uh, Jehovah Witnesses think he was a Michael the Archangel, came down to heaven and lost his wings and became a man. And, and he's out there to do something for us, I don't know. So many different opinions of who Jesus is. Everything but everything hangs on this. What does the book that says, Thus says the Lord, say about the person of Jesus? And we read it earlier in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. And now I'm going to try to do something that's very foolish. I'm going to try to use words to glorify Jesus Christ. That's all we got to work with. So Lord, you take over and, and, and use it. But here it goes. What does the Bible say about Jesus? It says in verse 3, He is the radiance of God's glory. 
Jesus, the Son, is the radiance of God's glory. Think about that phrase. Throughout the Old Testament, you read about the glory of God. The glory of God is the brightness of God, his beauty, his power, his energy, his majesty. The Bible says that if anyone were to even see that glory in an undiluted state, they would immediately die. No one can behold the glory of God in all of his splendor. And now the Bible says that Jesus is the radiance of that glory. He is, in other words, he is to God what sunlight is to the sun. He is the light of the sun, the splendor of God's splendidness, the shininess of God's glory. The Mount of Transfiguration, he sort of unveiled a little bit of that as the disciples beheld him as, and said that he was shining like the new day, noonday sun. I don't know if you've ever even got a picture of this in your mind. I, the Lord showed it to me one time about a year and a half ago. Just a glimpse of the splendor of Jesus, the, what we're going to see in heaven, shining like a humongous cosmic emerald uh, with, with 10 billion suns shining on it. All these different hues and colors, but the, the, the glory, the love, the purity was just shining in an undiluted way. It was magnificent. That's who Jesus Christ is. He is the sunlight of God's love. And Paul says in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 that we behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We behold the love of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The beauty of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The grace of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And then it says this, as though that were not enough. This is no angel, this is no simple egalitarian, no rabbi, no revolutionary. We're talking the Son of God, who is the brightness of God's shining. And then it says this, Jesus Christ is the exact representation of God's being. The exact representation of God's being. Exact means exact. Not approximate, not close, not the best symbol of deity we've ever found. No. The supreme parable of God. No, 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 no. It says exact representation, represent, the presentation of God. Where God is presented, this is exactly what he looks like. The exact presentation. It's so important to pay attention to the very words of Scripture. They are God-spoken. He's the exact representation of the being of God. The word there means the innermost essence of God. In other words, what the Bible is saying, and this is so radical, is that when we're talking about Jesus, we're not just talking about an ethical role model. We're not just talking about a do-gooder in the first century. We're not talking about somebody who's right up there with Muhammad Gandhi and Buddha and, and Muhammad. No, we're talking about someone who's qualitatively different. He's in a league of his own. He's a one-of-a-kind thing. He's man, yes. He's humanity, yes. But he's also the exact representation of the very inner essence, the very being of God. And when he shines, the very glory of God shines out. And so the Bible says some pretty amazing things about Jesus. It says that he is the word of God. That's another way of saying he's the exact representation of God. When God speaks, his name is Jesus. He's the word of God. He's the spokenness of God. He's the revelation of God. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 says, He's the image of God. You get a picture of God in your mind, and it better be of Jesus Christ, because he is the one image of God. Philippians 2 says he's the form of God. Morphe tu theu. If you get a picture of a form of God in your mind, you want to know what God looks like. You want to know what the character of God is like. Don't go drawing from memories in your past, what your dad was like or what your mom was like. You think of the person of Jesus Christ. Here's where God shines. Here's where God is represent, represented. And there's no gulf between the two. Jesus is to the Father what sunlight is to the Son. When the Father speaks, his name is the Son. His name is Jesus Christ. The Bible says then that 
Jesus said, if you see me, you see the Father. What would you think of me if I said that? If you see me, you see the Father. You know, someone says, Greg, why don't you, uh, you know, show us the Father, and then we'll be satisfied. God the Father. This is what Jesus does in John chapter 14, verses 9 and 10. Jesus says, Philip, you want me to show you the Father? Have I been so long with you, and yet you don't know me? Well, if you see me, you see the Father. Why are you asking, show us the Father? In other words, don't go looking over there, or over there, or up there, or in some theology book to try to find the Father. You look into the face of Jesus Christ. No angel, no human being could ever say that. You want to know what God looks like? Look at me. You want to know what God's character is like? Look at moi. But Jesus goes around saying that. In fact, he gets, he gets even more crazy. John chapter 5, he says, Honor me like you honor the Father. John chapter 5, verse 23. Honor me like you honor the Father. Worship me like you worship the Father. In fact, if you, don't, if you don't accept me, you don't accept the Father either. But if you accept me, you've got the Father also. What is this guy thinking? If an angel said that, he'd be guilty of blasphemy. If a rabbi said that, he'd be guilty of blasphemy. But Jesus says it. And the people who don't accept it think he's guilty of blasphemy. They pick up stones and want to stone him. Those are your options. You either see this person as being the Son of God and telling the truth, or you see him as being the incarnation of the devil incarnate because he's going around blaspheming all the time. The Bible ascribes stuff to Jesus that no human being and no angel could be ascribed of. It says that he is my Lord and my God in, in, in John chapter 20, verse 28. My Lord and my God, Thomas says, and Jesus doesn't say, stop, no, don't do that. No, 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 you're getting carried away here. I'm just a man like you. No, he accepts it like worship. Romans chapter 9, verse 5, says that he is God over all, blessed forever. Titus chapter 2, verse 13. You can always tell I'm getting anointed because I start to spit. Titus chapter 2, verse 13, says he's our great God and Savior. Our great God and Savior. And then the Bible ascribes to him things that are just incredible. Look at the rest of uh, of the first chapter of Hebrews. We'll be talking about this later on. It says this. In, In verse 2, it calls him the creator of all things. And the heir of all things. This isn't a man. This isn't a guru. This isn't an angel. Verse 3, he's the sustainer of all things. He's the savior of all. Verse 4, he's above the angels. Verse 6, the angels worship him. Verse 8, he's God enthroned forever. Verse 10, he's the Lord who laid the foundations of the world. You guys, this is not some nice idea, some concept, some religious symbol, someone who's going to nicely fit into whatever you believe, he'll make your belief system a little bit better, sprinkle him in with a little Buddha, a little Bhagavad Gita, a little Vedas or whatever. With Jesus Christ, it's an all or nothing deal. He's the King of kings, he's the Lord of lords, he's the God of gods, he's the Savior of the world, he's the light of God, the Lamb of God, the door of God, and no man goes to the Father except through him. He's the way, the truth, and the light, and all glory, and all adoration, and all praise is to be directed towards the Son of God, the exact representation of the Father's being. That's who he is. Give him the praise. Amen. You cannot paint a picture of him that is too beautiful. And then you just add this little bit, and I'm not even going to go into it here, but all that I just said about Jesus is manifested as he dies on the cross. That's the glory of God. But it, it ends up being this. You can hear this, and you can say that is the single stupidest thing I've ever heard in my life. A five foot four, 127-pound Jew in the first century, you're calling God as ridiculous, as a fraud, as a charlatan, as a blasphemer, we ought to wipe out this lie off the face of the earth. That's perfectly appropriate. Or you say, I bow my knee to this Savior, and I will live for you now, and you are Lord of my life. I no longer steer my own ship. I want you to steer it. I submit my all to you. Either one of those responses is appropriate. 
The second one is the true one. I encourage you to do it this morning if you haven't done it already. But what is utterly inappropriate, what has missed the point, what reveals a person's ignorance of the record is to say, oh, he, Jesus is the best person that ever lived. Great insights, I find. Uh, nice, really nice guy. Uh, you know, um, fits in real well with my own system of reincarnation. I just... You're missing the point, because unfortunately, however narrow you may think it is, with Jesus Christ, it's an all-or-nothing thing. There's one way out of the forest. His name is Jesus Christ. And this morning, if you don't know him as Lord and Savior, I encourage you to submit your life to him. As the worship team comes out, you guys ready? I want to sing another song here. I want to sing a song. Yeah. I want to end by just doing this. I want to ask the Holy Spirit to be working here, and I want to just praise Jesus Christ. You know what? Christianity is Jesus Christ. Everything else is a footnote. It's not about you. It's not about how it can solve your problems. It does that, yeah. It's not about behavior. We talk about that, yeah. But it's not about behavior. It's not about ritual. It's not about church. It's not about denominations. It's not about this, that, or the other thing. It's about Jesus Christ and our relationship with him. In the end, the sum total of everything we're about and ever have to be about is the person of Jesus Christ. And all that we do and all that we preach and all that we sing in one way or another has got to come down to this one thing. It's got to be a finger that in one way or another points to Jesus Christ. And if we start getting programs and committees or whatever that aren't doing that, then let's shut them down because that's the only thing that's important. His name is Jesus. Let's stand and give him the praise. Amen. Let's stand and give him the praise. Holy Spirit, be working here. And I pray, God, for any who don't know you, that they would, before the song is even over, come to know you.